0: Welcome to our Thought Leadership interview series. I'm Brandon Cooper, the Chief Risk Officer here at Venminder. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Keith Koo. Keith is a founder and managing partner of Guardian Insight Group, a technology risk advisory firm dedicated to identifying, assessing, controlling, and mitigating risks associated with doing business between clients and their third parties. Previously, Keith was Managing Director and Head of Third-Party Risk Management for the Mitsubishi Financial Group and was responsible for ensuring that the bank had the proper framework, policies, and controls to meet regulatory standards for effective oversight of third parties and vendors. Keith is also the creator and host of Silicon Valley Insider Radio Show and podcast on 1220 AM KDOW, Silicon Valley, San Francisco. Keith has interviewed C-level executives from Fortune 100, government officials, as well as unicorns, all in the context of innovation, disruption, and the risks associated with doing business to achieve optimal business outcomes. Keith is an advisor to Fortune 1000 companies, accelerators, and startups in emerging technology such as FinTech, InsurTech, BlockTech, IoT, artificial intelligence, and cybersecurity. His passion is to be a bridge for companies navigating digital transformation between legacy and new technology. Welcome, Keith. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, Brandon, and to the VenMinder team, I'm really excited to be here, and I know the topic you and I are both very passionate about, third-party risk.
0: It really is. It's a topic we spend a lot of time on. And, and I got to tell you, I'm more than a little nervous in dealing with somebody who's already a podcast rock star. So this, this is going to be going an interesting perspective for me to try to interview a master interviewer.
1: <laughs> so, well, the funny also, thing is um, I'm the one nervous because I'm the one using being the interviewer, not the one being interviewed.
0: There you go. <laughs> well, from your perspective overall, how do you think uh, financial institutions are doing with third-party risk?
1: Well, I think that they're struggling and the reason why I say they're struggling is that on one hand they're trying to do the right thing which is adhere to all the regulatory oversight and and to do it in a proactive fashion but on the other hand based on whether or not you're creating a program because of an existing enforcement action or you've dealt with an incident it can be very expensive and time-consuming
0: it really can and it's particularly if you're trying to respond to an enforcement action you're kind of having to throw bodies at it at first and just try to address you know the the material bleeding that's going on before you can really get in there and kind of optimize the team and, and that brings up an interesting kind of question that I know you and I have talked a little about as you 're staffing up a team, you know what sort of qualifications and, and FTE do you need on uh, on an ideal third party risk team
1: i'm really glad you asked that question, so when you think about third party risk and the way I usually explain it, and I know you do as well is third party risk is a microcosm of essentially all risk. So if you've got operational risk and you're normally worrying about cyber incident management, legal frameworks, contractual management, it all applies to third party risk. The only argument sometimes is that you, you might have a dedicated credit function or something like that. So once you establish that anything that is relevant to your overall organization applies to third parties, then you know that it's a, it's a very daunting task ahead of you.
0: It is, and you really got to have some special skill sets on that team as well. I mean, you got to have somebody who's skilled in reviewing SOC reports, somebody who's good at doing financial analysis, uh, somebody who understands business continuity planning, and, and usually that's not just one person having all those skill sets. So you typically are talking hiring multiple, multiple people.
1: You know, what, what and you're do? exactly right, and that's where I think when you talk about skill sets, if you work for a large bank, um, typically a third-party leader might have come out of audit, might have come out of Um, a regulatory group such as the OCC themselves or might have been raised through a procurement organization because they think third party is vendor Um, those skill sets are all very important but what I see usually is a lacking component and why um, when I was at MUG the head of operational risk brought me in is there isn't oftentimes people who actually are practitioners in relationship management. Or actual vendor or third-party management and what I mean by that is let's uh, talk about a topic technology companies so if you have a large outsourcer supporting your financial institution you really need to have somebody who understands how to manage the outsourcing function not somebody who can just simply it's actually not simple but somebody who can read the regulation around third-party oversight that's all great but what about somebody who's actually been in the trenches with the vendor on constructing a statement of work? And what happens when that complexity arises? And we've had companies where there's 800 statements of work. You really need to have that skill set that somebody who knows how to manage the function itself.
0: That's exactly right. And it really does require finding kind of a specialized function and somebody who's actually you know, been through the battles with, with a vendor and, and has dealt successfully with them. You know, besides following regulatory guidance closely, what are the best practices do you see out there in managing risk right now?
1: Well, we we just kind of touched on it. I think uh, the best practice, again, is whatever context a third party is and, you know, differentiation between your audience, which is financial institutions where third party risk is overarching versus something in a technology company where they can actually say, we just care about vendors. Right. Knowing what the relationship is that you're engaged with. So... We've talked about an outsource in the last example. We can talk about it um, in terms of a software company or a cloud provider. These are all examples of vendors or third parties. But then we even talk about regulators and other entities because um, there's a relationship with them as well. And in the overarching context of third party, you have to know about each of them. So the best practice would be is have an expert who understands why you're engaged with that particular relationship and how to manage them effectively
0: that's right that's right and and understanding sort of where the uh what the perspective of the regulator is i think is is a really important context as well um you know one one topic that's made a lot of the news recently and i think it's just been a constant drumbeat thanks to you know things like the Equifax breach and others how how concerned do you think day-to-day people within a financial institution should be with
1: cybersecurity <laughs> your timing is impeccable because the uh government accountability oversight of office just released the report um, which I'm talking about on what happened mortem on the Equifax breach in the context of cybersecurity. And the, the important part about cybersecurity is that in essence cannot be solved for. And that sounds very provocative, but it can't. And the reason why is simply this bad actors, the financial incentives are too great and the cost is too inexpensive. Um, there are, if you don't know what you're doing as a technologist, you could actually buy an email list for two million email addresses for under five hundred dollars US. I mean wow. there are so many ways that cyber criminals with bad intent will monetize this activity. So when we think about Equifax, you know, a very large, large organization that a lot of financials and a lot of companies rely on, um they simply had really Uh, immature business practices in order to defend against that and uh, you know just to name a few and things that are very very simple um, they had not kept up with patching of normal software and we're talking about where there were incident management uh, reports that the patches needed to be applied a year earlier and they just never got around to it Um, they had inefficient detection systems. The actual breach, if we recall, for the Equifax was a subsidiary in South America with an open router that they bought from like the equivalent of Best Buy in South America that had a default admin user ID and a default admin password. And so once the hacker got in, which any of us could have done, uh, then it was just a simple case of traversing Equifax's, I guess, relatively simple network to then suck out over 145 million identities.
0: It, it, it was absolutely stunning, all the different breakdowns in that. And, you know, you raised an interesting point a moment ago about really never being able to, to defeat cybersecurity. I, I think of it a lot like when I was working in, in credit card fraud control unit. I remember uh, one of the senior managers there saying, look, you've got to realize you've got people out there making a career out of defrauding banks. So we're never actually going to beat them at their game. It's just a matter of trying to stay up with them and, you know, be, be ready to respond when it does happen. Overall, uh, in, in your conversations, do you feel like risk management gets enough attention from senior management and the board, and what sort of steps do you see that they could uh, take to better demonstrate their level of involvement?
1: It's a dichotomy. Your question about the senior management um, take risk management seriously, of course they do, but at the same time, they have a obligation to disclose if there's something inherently wrong. And Let me give you an example of this. Um, we we, ha- we partner with a cyber risk firm that has malware loaded on a USB key. And if the USB key gets loaded on the test laptop or computer, if you're not secure, you will have that machine taken over by this USB key. And they do this to demonstrate how easy it is. Now, whenever we talk to financial institutions, I'll say this with a blanket statement, um, everyone's often wants to see the devil, but nobody ever wants the key Um, introduced into their own environment even on a test machine because of what because if they did they struggle with what's the proper disclosure to the regulator that they have a vulnerability right and and we can talk later Brandon about whether it's a sock or a pen and can you but, but see this is the challenge here is senior management absolutely cares about risk management but what they also don't want to do is cause any undue concern and they really want to figure out if there's a vulnerability or not so you're kind of stuck in a quandary between managing the internal Environment and really understanding if you're at risk or not.
0: Yep, absolutely, and that—that that is the real quandary of it—is—is is trying to manage the right thing. And and to your point, I mean, nobody—nobody nobody wants to be the test case for—for for, for how it could fail and having to admit to a vulnerability. So it is really sort of that catch twenty-two. You know, one final question for you, and, and this really kind of brings it all home. But you know, we're we're talking a lot about regulatory reform nowadays. But do you see any potential relief coming in the short term? Not. In, terms of general regulatory relief, but anything that's going to trickle down to really give a break to the weary compliance officers in terms of third-party risk management. I'll be candid and just go ahead and answer the question. I don't. I mean, I see a lot of talk about regulatory reform around capital requirements and and other things, but I don't really see this changing the day-to-day compliance or third-party risk managers' life in any meaningful way in, in the short term. How about you?
1: Uh, I'm I'm flattered you even asked me this question. You you personally are the expert on this, and you've written blogs and articles on it. Um, I agree with you that there will not be a sense of regulatory relief, even if there's reform, and the simple reason is this. The whole point of why we have third-party risk, which was originally vendor risk to begin with, is the regulator is saying um, very bluntly that you can outsource the task or activity, but you can't outsource the risk, and this is just like if you have car insurance or home insurance, you are the owner of that. And so just because you work for a financial institution, you work for a company, that is your responsibility. So regulation or not, the burdens will continue to get higher and higher. And as we talked about earlier, um, it's going to get more complex. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, when we, we can talk about it in a non-financial industry term. Facebook in the Cambridge Analytica scandal, the APIs that Cambridge Analytica was using was part of the platform. It's never been in question. But now once people realize that their data was being passed on to these apps, you now have third party and even fourth party risk that people hadn't contemplated before. So now you're a bank and you have a integration into Facebook. Did you also inadvertently give access to Cambridge Analytica on your customers? Right. Exactly. Right?
0: Absolutely. And I agree with you. I mean, I, I just don't see anything changing in the in either in the short or medium term, at the very least, in, in terms of meaningful regulatory relief. I, to your point, as, as a homeowner, you you know you just continue to take on more and more risk, regardless of what type of insurance you have. So, speaking of which, you hear probably hear a thunderstorm rolling in the background here. So we'll see what kind of risk we're up against later today here also. So Keith, I really do appreciate it. Any final thoughts before we uh, wrap up for today's session?
1: I do, and thank you for the question. Um, On my own show, I usually wrap the show with a perplexing or a conundrum, something that doesn't have a right or wrong answer, but something I wanted to be thought-provoking. And my question to all third-party groups I'm talking to now is, with the introduction of decentralized technology like a blockchain, how do you account for third-party risk? And there's two examples of that. There's one where recently a blockchain was launched, hundreds of millions of dollars of investment, but the software provider didn't implement the network themselves, a group or a group of individuals actually launched the network, and people are transacting on that. Who would be the third party in that case? And then yeah. in the case of IBM Hyper or Hyperledger, a company that IBM participates in a fabric of blockchain permission, which means that it's controlled, you work with peers. And so it could be a bank to a technology company. There could be 10 peers, 100 peers. Are you all third parties? And so that's what I wanted to leave with is that this space will continue to get more complex no matter how... Much you're investing in it, and you really need to stay on top of your own relationships and understand what you're doing.
0: That's exactly right, and I, and I, I love the way you ended that with a, <laughs> a challenge back to the audience. So, I, again, I really appreciate it, Keith, and thanks, everybody, for joining in this session. Please be on the lookout for some future interviews in the same series.